0: Even before the COVID-19 pandemic, the entertainment industry was being upended by the rapid pace of streaming and other technology. Then COVID-19 hit shuttering movie theaters, shutting down the world and driving people into their homes and in front of their television screens where they've largely remained over this past year. Hello everyone, I'm Chitra Raghavan and this is Techtopia. The pandemic has been a giant wake-up call to an already disrupted industry which increasingly is turning to data-driven insights to figure out how to survive and how to evolve in the post-pandemic streaming era. Joining me now to talk about the data-driven transformation of Hollywood and the entertainment industry are two amazing guests. Anjali Midha is CEO and co-founder at Diesel Labs, The Cambridge, Massachusetts-based startup delivers cutting-edge content analytics to help media decision makers address some of the toughest questions confronting the industry today, such as what to produce, where to distribute it, and where to market it. I'm also joined by John Mass. He's executive vice president at Content Partners, a Los Angeles-based investment company, and the leading independent owner in the world of major studio-distributed films, television shows, and related media. Since its inception, Content Partners has invested more than $1 billion in this marketplace, with more than 500 studio-release films and more than 3,000 hours of television. Anjali and John, welcome to Techtopia. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Talk about disruption, right? Did either of you ever imagine that something as destructive as a global pandemic would descend on the world? And and what's it been like to see the effects on the entertainment industry? Well, I
1: definitely did not see the pandemic coming. I think, um, you know, being in our shoes, uh, starting a, a company that's studying the the interactivity and the development in the media industry was sort of tough enough as it was. Thinking ahead about what you know, what were we going to see in the next three to five years? Pandemic was definitely not on the dartboard, but it has been a fascinating year in terms of actually, I think, accelerating a lot of the change that we're expecting in the media industry. It's sort of speeding up because we're seeing people at home, we're seeing accelerated change in terms of how movies will be distributed, not just this year, but in the years to come. I think a lot of what we were probably going to see over the next, you know, five, 10 years, we ended up, we're going to now see having, you know, have that happen in the next year or two. John, I don't know if that uh, jives with your perspective as well, but uh, interested to hear.
2: No, absolutely. I think... I think you have to look at, certainly it's been a devastating year. Uh, so many, so, so much obviously loss of life, which is the saddest component of this, but also businesses have really been shook. But at the same time, I think there's been a lot of advancements. And as you said, things like PVOD and TVOD and the film business, shortening the windows of, of uh, the licensing of different content from theatrical to various forms of television has uh, happened. And I think in many ways, um, it won't ever go back to where it was once was those windows will stay very short some studios will continue to release both in theaters and on as loosely defined television or at home um, as possible and i think that's good for the business you know innovation and change is good and something like the pandemic has certainly accelerated and changed that um at the same time i think we're seeing the uh theaters coming back the reopening there seems to be um, a, a real demand for people to get out and go to movie theaters. I don't think 2021 will approach 2019. I think 2022 will be a much better guide as to what the theater business will be but uh, suffice to say you know it's it certainly going to be much better than 2020 and uh, I'm, I'm glad I'm, I think there's nothing like going to a movie theater and I hope people do go back.
0: Oh, I totally agree. I, I just love being in a movie theater. Nothing really quite compares to, to that. Um, if you look at the transformation of the entertainment industry, even pre COVID John, what, what have been the most sort of consequential changes and who are the drivers in, in how content is, has been produced?
2: I think how content has been produced has still been driven by the creators and, uh, Um, whether those are writers or directors you know actors the creation of content producers uh the creation of content has been driven by them but um in what form it takes what distribution channel it may rest upon or be delivered uh that's been dictated by the traditional buyers big studios and networks and now new players the you know more more tech-oriented type companies that have entered the entertainment business. And um, it's still to be determined what it, will, what it will look like in the future.
0: So I guess it's one more area where sort of big tech is sort of playing the 800-pound gorilla now, right? You've got Netflix and Amazon and Apple and all of these players uh, who are suddenly making their presence known in a very big way.
2: Yes, yes. Um, and, uh, you know, most recently, the move... That that we we've heard rumors that Amazon may be buying MGM or is in talks to buy MGM is a really big play where you see further consolidation of the business, further vertical integration between a quasi a distributor in the case of Amazon and a producer distributor in the in the case of uh, MGM. So it gets uh, it becomes become it gets to be real interesting, you know, going forward and the role that these new companies in the entertainment business are going to have.
1: Yeah, and speaking of creative, it's interesting too, because some of those tech behemoths, as you called them, they have very different decision-making frameworks, right? It's, it's completely different, wildly different in fact, to program an on-demand service with thousands of hours of content versus how we used to see things get programmed where it was, you know, I need a drama to fill my Tuesday, 9 p.m. or Wednesday, 9 p.m. time slot. So that has also, I think, accelerated pretty fundamentally, um, you know, with the introduction of some of these other services like Peacock or Paramount Plus that are coming out from the traditional media companies themselves, now catching up to thinking about programming in that completely different way, which ultimately impacts what gets selected to get made um, and, and where things appear for audiences.
0: Yeah, so it's just not just how we distribute it, but how we actually consume the content, and that's one of the areas where your company, Diesel Labs, uh, is is sort of uh, making a huge amount of headway in terms of content analysis and cross-platform audience and insight analysis. What are the kinds of things you're studying, and and what are you finding?
1: Yeah, it's you know what's so interesting about the world we're in right now is that we have these we have more content than ever before and somehow or the other we have less knowledge about how audiences are consuming that content because it is now so fragmented sitting in so many different platforms and requires very sophisticated measurement to figure out you know really what's going on under the hood and did somebody just you know click away from Netflix and over to Disney plus or maybe they clicked to, to go to their set-top box. Those are questions that are, that are you know, becoming increasingly difficult to solve. What we're doing at Diesel is we're using all of the audience engagement data out there uh, across all the major social and video platforms to help us understand what's happening. If Netflix keeps their data close to the vest and if Disney Plus keeps their data close to the vest, how are we gonna start to unpack what's really going on with audiences? And that's, that's part of the role that Diesel Labs is starting to play.
0: And, and what are the things you're finding? I mean, good
1: goodness, especially this week, uh, it's been uh, it's been a very tumultuous week with the news about Warner Media and Discovery joining forces most likely as well as um, as John mentioned with the uh, Amazon MGM news. And what's really interesting, one of the, the latest things we learned this week actually was Netflix this year was poised to be the largest producer of content in terms of volume. They had the most titles um, currently slated for release this year. With the Warner Media and Discovery News, they, that joint new company would actually overtake Netflix, Netflix and move to first place in terms of volume of content being released this year. On top of that, then we have the sort of engagement piece of it, which is Disney Plus that releases fewer titles than both of those other companies that I'm mentioning, but has by far the most audience engagement related to its content. So in terms of making noise with fewer titles, they've been doing a tremendous job. Those are just a couple of the types of things that we've been seeing happening here in these last couple of weeks and months.
0: Wow, that's amazing! And and uh, in terms of the types of content that people are watching, you've done some really interesting analysis, like around the time when Bridgerton was really hot, and looking at some of these other trends, looking at um, rebooting of content, and what what are some of the key trends you're finding?
1: I think what's what's interesting is, is that we definitely see that the the streaming platforms are taking more risks with their content than than the folks on the traditional side. But I fully anticipate that over time, we're gonna see them both kind of meet in the middle to a certain extent. The Bridgerton story is a funny one, actually. So Bridgerton, as, as most of you probably all know, is uh, was Netflix's Christmas Day content that came out last year, 2020. Um, and what was interesting, the audience signal that we were seeing from that, it was immediately after people finished watching Bridgerton. They couldn't help themselves. Everybody wanted more period pieces, more Regency content, if you will, more drama to consume. And at the time, Netflix had few options for those folks. So people started asking their friends, asking their networks, figuring out, you know, what should I go watch next? And the, the top show that became recommended is actually a, was a lesser known show called Sanditon, uh, which is a PBS masterpiece uh, title. And uh, Chitra, actually, since the last time you and I spoke, Sansaton, which only had one season and was not renewed for a second season, literally in the last week and a half or two weeks, it was announced that they are going to now produce seasons two and three of that show. I think, and I don't think it's a stretch to say thanks entirely to the excitement around the show that was generated drafting off of the Bridgerton audiences, you know, rabid consumption of like content. So that's just one story. And there's probably a hundred like that Um, where we can see the trends and patterns, how audiences consume content and what they want to consume is actually driving a lot of the sort of very strategic decision-making that's happening at the highest levels.
0: Well, I guess with all of the streaming, right, all of this demand, well, all of this demand for content on the part of viewers, there must be a massive demand for content on the part of the, the producers who have to shell out all this content, right? How and and it seems like just from some of the work you've done on rebooting uh episodes and all of this and and john in fact you own a huge amount of uh entertainment rights to like things like csi and law and order and all of these uh, old uh beloved shows i guess there must be a huge hunger for those types of shows as well to fill all this space right
2: uh, absolutely so the more more eyeballs, more people looking for content, more content that you need. And that's why I think, you know, Netflix is geared up so much content production and creation. One, because the demand is there Two because as these media companies start to become more competitive and siloed, they're not selling to each other anymore. Disney is keeping its content for itself and no longer has any, for instance, any of the Marvel content on Netflix. With that, Netflix has to rely on its own or others for their content. So they've really geared up. They knew this ahead of time when they saw that others were going to start their OTTs and are creating an incredible amount of content. But it's very it's very siloed, and I think it will continue to be siloed. Uh, if MGM is bought by Amazon, I assume they will be the in-house studio for Amazon. Will be creating content only for Amazon, and uh, there are very few, as I think they've been referenced, uh, arms dealers before. It's a you know strange reference, but. Companies like Sony, who will sell to anybody, uh, and I think that's where you get that reference, um, has done fared very well. You look at their uh, numbers. You know, they just made a big deal at Netflix and Disney for uh, their new releases and some of their library content, and they've chosen that path. They are not going to be competing with Paramount Plus or HBO Max or Amazon or or or, or, or Netflix. They are going to uh, sell to everybody, and there's a role. And we will see if some of the other studios who have started to make forays into um, this space will combine with others or will for- go it alone or will roll up their tent and just you know make content for everyone. It's uh, to be determined. I think there's still a lot more consolidation and change to occur going forward.
1: And I think that's probably why franchises are so important, uh, which is you know why MGM, for example, is such an attractive target. Uh, given that they do have a big franchise in James Bond, for example, because you made the point earlier about how now Marvel content is no longer available on Netflix. It's exclusively available on Disney+. Plus. It means each of these players needs to put a stake in the ground as to what their franchise content would be, and that extends to television also. Uh, for example, you mentioned NCIS or Law & Order. Those are franchises in their own right, as are all these reboots that we were just talking about earlier coming back familiar content has a, an extremely important and essential role to play in in filling out the total value proposition for audiences as they think about, should I subscribe to platform A or platform B?
2: It's a symbiotic relationship in a weird way. Yes, in, in a way they're competitive broadcasters, let's use traditional broadcast, and um, those who had taken syndication rights off network syndication rights or the OTTs, they it's now a symbiotic relationship because you see something like um, this example, like Grey's Anatomy. It had almost a rebirth. A lot of people discovered, you know, Grey's Anatomy through their streaming platform and then flocked back to broadcast network. They get the latest season. Same thing with Breaking Bad. If it weren't for Netflix, I don't know that uh, Breaking Bad would have had its success or been discovered by as many people. So it's had a, you know, they've had this great sort of symbiotic relationship, and there's been rebirth. So Fuller House, I think, became a new show, a rebirth show, when the folks at Netflix saw the numbers of how many people were watching old episodes of Full House, or Seventh Heaven, or Gossip Girl, or Fresh Prince. Now, these all have new iterations of them, and I think a lot of it is because of this discovery from people who grew up with those shows and wanted to watch them again, or, people who just discovered them, younger generations who discovered those shows and say, oh, these are great. And now wanna um, new episodes. Um, Cobra Kai, great example of that too. So it's, uh, it's great. I think it's been terrific, but that also talks about the value of franchise power, You know, recognized brands that have had success um, that are being rediscovered uh, and enjoyed by millions
0: yeah, that kind of answers you know I've often wondered why are they doing these spinoffs of these old shows? You know, why don't they just come up with new ideas? Why is there such a lack of you know originality? But I guess this kind of answers that, right? The a, the need for content and tried and true content, and then, of course, sort of the world of comfort food, the equivalent of comfort food of having these shows uh, on tap, right?
1: absolutely and all, you know it's the comfort food too and I'll, you know when you think about hey should i subscribe to this platform and do they have content for me um, recognizable titles things you already know about play i think a, almost an oversized role in that decision making process for audiences because they're not always going to remember every you know if I, if i asked you can you name 20 titles of things that you watched off of netflix last year you certainly watched 20, maybe you watched 40, but coming up with all those titles off the top of your head can be harder, whereas familiar content is easier to recall. You know, it's kind of woven through our, our lives, as John put it, you know, through your childhood into your adulthood.
2: That reference to comfort food, I, and you may know this, Anjali, but I believe that of the programming of the major OTTs, something like 70% is licensed content or library content. Where what is viewed uh, versus original content original television shows of being you know twenty to thirty percent so they promote and sell and get you to subscribe with new shows with big names and big stars and big directors and big budgets and exciting content and you sort of stay on the service for the comfort food the reruns of friends or the office or Seinfeld or law and order or, and, you know, fortunately CSI. So I I think it's a balance of, of, of the two. And, um, and I think that may be one of the driving reasons for Amazon's purchase of MGM, which is, you know, they, they want, they're going to create more and more new content, but they also license content or library content for these streamers is equally important.
1: completely agree. And I would go a step further in saying it's even the family and kids content that actually plays an incredibly sizable role in in what's being viewed in between those blockbuster Bridgerton moments, right? Um, We don't often talk about that family and kids content, but especially looping back around to the first question that we all were digging into about the pandemic, kids and family content this past year has been absolutely essential uh, when you when you have, you know, the whole family packed in the home, everyone trying to juggle work and school and and everything else. So it's, uh, you know, that that the the aspect of balancing the library from the the big blockbuster, the shiny, glossy, fun, new stuff um, is going to be something we're all going to have to learn how to do together because, you know, every platform has their own approach to that.
0: Yeah, and John, what's, uh, you have the CSI franchise, right? You've got some of these big franchises. Tell, tell us a little bit about what you have, and sort of uh, what it's been like to to see this evolution of uh, of the industry, and where all of these these big shows fit in, and how it's affected your your uh, investment company.
2: Well, we've certainly been a great beneficiary of the CSI franchise. Uh, it was uh, it's a brilliant show that has you know lasted incredible. Have had an incredible run, both in original episodes and in reruns, and now we'll be coming back. I believe in the fall or mid-season with a new show with the original cast from the original CSI, which was based in Las Vegas, and they're going to call this one CSI Las Vegas. So it just we're going back. You know, brands mean something. Familiarity means something, and it's a proven commodity. Uh, as opposed to starting something with a new original idea with new cast and not knowing where that will take you, I think that there is sort of a built-in audience and uh, a built-in. I think um, uh, there's, while there's no guarantee of success, you have uh, certainly have the cards in your favor if you um, you know you start with this, you know brand name and and, and stars who have been proven in this in this uh, milieu. You know, we're fortunate that we own something like CSI. We own other big franchises in the feature film and television area. Area we own, you know, big movies like Black Hawk Down, and Daddy Daycare, and Thirteen Going on Thirty, and Made in Manhattan. And you think about all these films, uh, The Aviator. It goes on and on. But there's something there for everyone. Um, they're movies you probably don't think about all the time, but then when I bring up a movie like Thirteen Going on Thirty, you go, oh, that was a great movie." You know what a, and you know I think many people you know sort of discover Jennifer Garner watching that movie, and um, you know she's had an incredible career since then. So there there are a lot of movies that we own, and uh, fortunately the audience uh, continues to flock to.
0: I was on HBO Max yesterday and I saw for the first time the teaser for a Friends reunion. And I was like, wow, that's nostalgia, right? I mean, that was crazy. I'm not sure I want to see them back together. I kind of, I like remembering them the way they were.
1: It's, It's remarkable. Friends is one of those unique ones that stands out kind of like The Office in that these are shows that, meant something to, you know, a certain generation or cohort of people. And then to John's point, we've had tons of other generations, other groups discover those programs on their own and and learn, you know, love them. And so it's a, it basically, I sometimes I think of these reunion specials, reboots, like things like that, you know, recognizable brand names, recognizable talent. It de-risks a lot of the investments that are being made. Cause again, you can look at these choices as individual choices to, for example, reunite the Friends cast. But you also have to think about what is the sort of overall programming strategy for a platform like HBO Max. They have to have something new every month to make sure that they're mitigating, essentially, subscribers from churning out, essentially unsubscribing from the platform. So these, these choices, when you look at them, if you take a step back and look at them from that 30,000 foot view, it's a fascinating to see how they all ladder up to that bigger strategy, and to your point, I don't know. I'm on the fence right now about whether I'm going to watch it on the first day, first minute when it's available, or maybe uh, you know uh, sit back and see how people react to it before jumping into it. But um, you know, it, it really speaks to an, an overarching, very, very interesting approach to to programming, to making sure that there's always something new and fresh on the platform. And I think it was Netflix who said. Every night is premiere night for Netflix because there's something new for every person every night for you to discover, whether it's part of that library or whether it's something fresh, you know, hot off the presses. I thought that was a very sort of telling about the underlying strategy that they're using to to approach how they think about purchasing content, licensing content, producing content, et cetera.
0: Wow. It's just head spinning. The the change and you know the 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 amount of content, the the change in how people are consuming that content, it is quite amazing. I mean, we we mentioned earlier, John, you mentioned how, you know, people were asking when COVID hit, right? Is this, is this the end of the movie theater? You know, what's going to happen to watching movies I- at home? I mean, in the theater, and of course, now you have same day, you know, theater release and uh, in-home release. So there's all kinds of innovation going on there. Uh, what what do you think? Where does sort of uh, the movie theater fit into the future once uh, we sort of go back to the new normal post post-pandemic?
2: Well, as a romantic about the movie business. I certainly hope people go back to the movie theaters. You know, I remember going to see Star Wars for the first time at a movie theater in my, you know, hometown and I'll always remember that. And you know, seeing on the big screen and seeing the imagery that uh, George Lucas was able to create, you know, the you know, western set out in space was just so fascinating to me. I just couldn't imagine seeing it on a small screen you know, and premiering that, you know, at my in my living room, even on the big, you know, sort of 80 inch TV that I have today. It's just not the same. I, I'm sort of thinking right here what, what will happen I, again. I don't think it's going to get to to 2019 levels this year. Certainly not. We've gone half a year and they've been pretty much closed. But um, I do think they'll come back. People are going to go back in droves. But I also think we're going to see a number of screens. Movie theaters just aren't going to make it. We've already seen uh, two chains here in Los Angeles that haven't made it. There's one, the Draft Drafthouse, who went through a bankruptcy and just was bought out of bankruptcy. I think a lot of screens, we're going to have a downsizing in the number of screens, but maybe an increase in the experience that people have at the theaters. And uh, maybe that's what's needed. You know, a you shake up is sometimes good. Change is good. And maybe the experience will be better for everyone. We'll, we'll have to see.
1: Yeah, I think what's, what's really interesting is, you know, there were it's funny to think about you know are people going to go back to the movies if you think about pre-pandemic times there was always a cohort of people who chose not to go see certain films in the theaters right Um, there were definitely the people who stood in line and went at midnight on Thursday night Uh, But there was also the group that said, "Nah, you know, I'll wait for it to to come out in the olden days on video or I'll wait for it to come out on TV or or what have you. I think we're just going to see that those options are kind of collapsed. And instead of waiting six months or eight months, we may only have to wait 20 days, 30 days, 45 days, whatever the case may be to to get the sort of at home variation of the option. Um, or, in some cases, like what HBO Max is proving out right now, is having them simultaneous where people can opt to go and have the full movie theater experience and, and pay for that, uh, whereas some people may opt to watch it on their couches at home. The question really becomes what does that do to the economics of the movie theaters? How many of them can we sustain? Um, you know, that, that's less clear, I think, but it's, it's definitely. We've definitely seen that people are willing to pay extra to watch things on their couches, but that they're also still willing to take the trek to the theater to watch, especially the spectacular action adventure movies that really deserve that big screen. So, I guess that was not a very good answer because I'm not really predicting anything that hasn't happened yet. But I think it's clear that there's that all of the options that are here on the table right now, it's just going to be a question of a little, a slight question of timing. Uh, to make sure that we can figure it out post-pandemic and give each of those screens their fair share um, of airtime.
2: Yeah. You know what I think we might see? Here's a prediction. Okay. Okay, And I'm <laughs> going to say it to someone who's in the research business, Anjali, but I think that we may see someone introduce dynamic pricing like they did on Broadway. And if you are the type of person that's going to line up on Thursday night to go see the next Star Wars iteration or whatever the next movie, big franchise movie might be, uh, you might be the person who's willing to pay more than $17.50 or whatever the going rate is for a ticket to go to the theater. And if you're someone who's willing to go on a Tuesday afternoon to a movie, you might be willing to pay $3. And that sort of dynamic pricing of paying maybe $100 for opening night and $3 for a dead afternoon will make the industry more efficient. Just like how, I guess, dynamic pricing of sorts has occurred in airlines, right? All of a sudden, now airlines are profitable. Why? Because they've introduced technology that allows people to pay you know, on an a la carte basis for certain things, fill seats, predict demand. And they're now making money and, and they're, they're filling all their planes and they're not having a lot of planes with empty seats. Uh, I think that that could happen. So the pandemic, I think for all, as we talked at the beginning, all the bad things that have come from it, there is some good, there's some silver lining. I think the collapsing of these windows is interesting and maybe better for some of these companies. Uh, even things not in the entertainment business like Zoom and how it's helped distance learning or work from home or Postmates and Grubhub, how that's accelerated there's some good things have come and have accelerated because of it. I think we may see that with movie theaters too, that it's, yes, we're going to lose some of the movie theater operators. There are some movies, there are too many screens in certain theaters. The malls aren't what they once were driving, you know, business. It, it's, it was due for a shakeout and it's not been accelerated, but maybe, you know, just maybe dynamic pricing or something like that may help it, help it out
1: that's so interesting and then it sparks this other thought that we've been batting around here internally at at diesel as well which is what if the movie theaters are an extension of the actual films you're going to go see right so i think you mentioned this earlier about uh leveling up the actual experience of going to see the film what if it's not the same thing that it's always been with you know buying a bucket of popcorn and sticky floors, if there's more to more fun to be had, especially think like kids and family, if there's mini Disney Disneyland or Disney World in your backyard where you can go and see the next Frozen movie, that might also justify some of that dynamic pricing that you're talking about, where then it becomes more of an outing, more of an experience, something that's a little bit higher end than perhaps the sort of the regular movie going experiences that we're, when we think of going to the movies, that's what we have in the back of our heads. So there's there's definitely potential there as well.
2: Oh, absolutely. And and just like the airlines, you know, I'm just thinking, I let you, know, if you took a family of four to the theater, you know, it would be difficult during a school night, but on an off hours, then could you put pricing together, which you know, two buckets of popcorn, two candies, and four drinks, and with a ticket, and you know, put packages together. That will drive people drive, as we know, a lot of the margin is in the food and drink at the uh, movie theaters, the concessions. It gets really interesting, and and I hope that that happens. You know, uh, there's a there's a role these these movie theaters play. It's not just romantic with me. I just think the experience is so special uh, for certain movies, and uh, hopefully um,
0: they'll be able to continue. That's that's great. I mean, that dynamic pricing is a is a great idea because you know the cost of going to the movie is pretty prohibitive for a lot of families today, you know, if you actually add it all up, especially if you have a bunch of kids and they all want to eat. And I almost wonder if you want like a Las Vegas model where the food and drinks are kind of free. I know they, that's where the margins are, but in Las Vegas, right, you can drink and eat as much as you want because they know they'll make it up with everything you're gambling away. And so I wonder if there's a way to make it a little bit more cost efficient, but still maintain profitability and, and also accessibility for people for whom it may be prohibitively expensive. We can't wrap all this up without at least one mention, I think, of Baby Yoda, right? Going back to television and how it was so transformative for Disney, right? And Anjali, I remember you saying to me that not only do you do content analysis at the show level and the, the series level, but you also do content analysis at the character level. What, what are you seeing? I mean, Baby Yoda was kind of uh, a, kind of a very special moment for Disney plus, right? What are you kind of seeing in terms of evolution of characters and what people are looking for? Absolutely,
1: it's um, it's one of my favorite sort of things to remember from last year, which now, feel, or two years ago, rather, which feels like a century ago. <laughs> Not just because of the pandemic and and all of the the hardship that that brought, but also just you know, startup life makes you feel like time passes somehow faster and slower than reality. We actually started to look into characters right around the time that the uh, Avengers Endgame came out. So just, you know, we were curious and thinking ahead as to, at that point, Disney really hadn't talked much about what was the next chapter of the Marvel universe going to look like. You know, every every couple of years they, they share with everyone, you know, here's our three-year plan, here are all the films you can expect, here are all the shows you can expect. And that was sort of at the, right towards the end of that chapter, if you will, or that phase of the Marvel universe. So we decided to go ahead and see what we could learn about you know all of the different characters within the Avengers to start essentially making predictions about which characters could potentially be spun off into their, their own potential, their own storylines. And it was, I, I still recall back, even back then, and we're finally gonna see it come true actually in a few short weeks, that everyone's favorite character, one of the most talked about characters that didn't already have his own or her own um, film uh, series was Loki. From, from the Thor films. And uh, sure enough, you know, it's not rocket science, but the characters who were well favored are now seeing that they are getting these sort of series opportunities within the Disney Plus universe. Uh, we've seen WandaVision, we've seen Falcon and Winter Soldier, and with Loki coming up, I think uh, you know this June. So it's been, it's been very interesting. You mentioned Baby Yoda also. Maybe Yoda's an interesting one. He took on a life of his own, didn't he? So when we when we analyze data here, what we're trying to do is very responsibly um, reflect who the viewing audiences are of certain titles of certain shows and movies, but even if you weren't watching The Mandalorian, everybody knows who Baby Yoda is. Everyone's using the Baby Yoda memes. So even though it kind of made our lives a little bit more difficult here at work because we were trying to parse out, okay, well, you know, when people are referring to Baby Yoda, you know, what kinds of natural language processing or other techniques can we use to understand if this person was a viewer or not? But then beyond that, um, it's clear that you know, and, and Disney's, they're an incredibly, <laughs> I don't need to say this to anyone, but the, but they know what they're doing, right? They're, they're one of the ones out there who have been thinking, very thoughtful about this stuff from day one. Um, and, it, you know, it wouldn't surprise me at all if we started to see, um, you know, spinoffs similar to what we're seeing in the Avengers universe for all of their other universes as well. And that takes us right back to what we were talking about just moments ago franchises familiar characters and how important those are to the overall libraries of, of these platforms um it's, it's such a such an interesting strategy and disney plus has proven i mean in, in the short what year and some months that they have been around to to be able to pick up as many subscribers as they have is really a testament to not only the content that they're in the middle of producing and pushing out now but the disney vault as everyone calls it
0: Great. Well, uh, in conclusion, what I'd love to know is what are you watching now? What are you both excited about and what are you looking forward to in the coming months? I, I have been riveted by, like a lot of people, by Mayor of Easttown. I just can't stop watching it. It's been an, an incredible a short uh, mini season of amazing acting and, and plot lines. Uh, what are you watching?
1: Well, I have to confess that after you and I chatted those couple of weeks ago, that I started watching it myself, and I'm now right there with you, and I'm actually a little upset with you because of <laughs> all the cliffhangers um, that that I've now been uh, been uh, you know held to. So, I was watching last week's episode, and I won't ruin it for all of your listeners, but um, certainly with all the twists and turns that are there, I'm very eagerly eagerly awaiting uh, this Sunday's uh, new episode. Um, personally, you know, hazard of our jobs here at Diesel is that we watch pretty much everything that comes out. So I recently enjoyed uh, the Mitchells and the Machines on Netflix, which as you know, for kids and family content was uh, very well done, very hilarious. And for anyone who hasn't seen it, definitely if you need a laugh, that's, that's something to check out. Um, and I'm excited for Loki actually coming up because this has been on our minds here at Diesel for so long. And I have really high hopes for, for that show as well.
2: You know, I, I've been watching Mare of Easttown too. And I, I, um, I, it was, you know, recommendation engine, I guess on, on HBO max, it came up. I had heard about it, seen some promos for it. And I'm like, I'm going to watch it with my wife. And we loved it. And, you know, I'm a Kate Winslet fan. She's such a great actress, but the whole cast is fantastic. But what I really like most about it, and I'm wondering where you guys stand on it is that as much as I love the binge watch and I can't wait to see what's going to happen next because there are cliffhangers on, on the show. There's a lot of cliffhangers here. As you referenced, I like that I'm waiting a week for it. Gives me time to think about the show. Like, where's this going? Who did it kind of thing? It's a who it type of show. And you're like, where is this going? And I like that. And, and and it's the old way of watching television, right? Waiting a week and and thinking about it, having the water cooler effect for the three of us to talk about this if we weren't in a podcast and, and uh, having... Uh, you know, we did not want to have a spoiler alert on your podcast, but and there's something special about it, so I like waiting for it, and um, I have really enjoyed it. So um, that's one show. Um, I've been watching *Mosquito Coast* on on Apple, another one that you wait for. You know, the episodes they're delivered every week. Um, I think Apple Plus has done a really good job with some of their shows. I, I really have enjoyed. It. I like Tehran, which was early in the iteration. I like *Ted Lasso*. So they've done they've had some really great shows. I've really enjoyed, and. I've loved during COVID, you know, being at home a lot and watching a lot of television, discovering old shows that I always wanted to watch and didn't. And so I watched all the episodes of Deadwood. I'd watched a couple early on. I just never got into it. I mean, and loved it. And I watched all the episodes of The Wire. One of the, you know, between the two of them, two of the best shows, uh, you know, ever made, I think. And they're on a top 10 list of many critics. So um, I've, I've, I've really enjoyed it. I've watched a lot of television during uh the last year, and uh, and can't wait for uh, this Sunday night for some more.
1: I think you know, and I know we're we're wrapping up here, but you bring up such an interesting point with the whole cadence of delivery of programming and how important it is, and how Mayor of Easttown might stay with all of us as viewers longer than something that we just sort of burned through in one night. And I'm not sure I have the answer to that yet. I know technically, you know, (laughs) we're researchers here and that's what we do is find answers, but that's one that we haven't, I haven't quite cracked the code on that one yet, which is, is are we going to learn down the line that the way to build a franchise and the way to build that familiarity is by having things released, um, in a weekly cadence perhaps, or whatever cadence it is, but not dropped all at the same time. And it reminds me actually of One of the, I saw a tweet the other day from someone who said that their kid uh, talked about weekly drops of TV shows as being the Disney Plus model. (laughs) And uh, the person narrating the story said, and then they crumbled into ancient dust, which I can completely commiserate with because. Frankly, you know the the youngest generation out there probably doesn't even realize that that's the way that we watch TV for decades and decades until maybe 18 months ago when everything really changed. Or I, I should give Netflix more credit than that. Maybe it's been a few years where we had some shows that are you know delivered all at once. But um, it's 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 quite quite amazing how much even in the like let's call it the the a 30 year spectrum. Of generations, how people are going to remember things completely differently. Yes.
2: Completely agree. It's a really great point. It's something you were saying about Disney. And I just was reminded of something when Bob Iger uh, took his position as CEO at Disney. This was, you know, I think many people felt he had big shoes to fill because Michael Eisner had transformed a sleepy company into a real player. It had been a really sleepy company, Disney, when he took over and he transformed it. But Bob Iger really took it to a whole other level. You know, The fact that they have a $300 billion market cap company or whatever it is today is really a testament to Bob understanding the value of franchises. And when he was executing it, I didn't quite understand what he's doing. And I was thinking, wait, they're gonna go away from making 25, 30 million, 30 movies a year to focusing on franchises that were proven and, and leveraging those. and." putting it through the Disney machine of consumer products and theme parks. And I was like, at the time, I really didn't understand it. But as you think about it, his first move was getting rid of, uh, of Miramax because it didn't fit with the brand of Disney and um, buying Pixar. He, he bought, I mean, maybe it took some time to get rid of Miramax, but his first move was to mend the fences with Steve Jobs and buy Pixar because he understood that they, had, they were a brand. Pixar it was a brand as much as Disney was a brand and you went to a Pixar movie because it was a Pixar movie. You didn't know what it was, what the movie might be, but you knew that you were going to get quality entertainment, family entertainment. And then he started going in their vault of old television shows and movies and recreating them, you know, whether it's Pirates of the Caribbean or High School Musical or whatever and doing iterations of that. Then he bought Marvel and he bought LucasArts and you ju- which obviously is a Star Wars franchise, and franchises became the thing. And now you realize what they've created—that every look at Netflix, they have no franchise, albeit they're building franchises. But if they don't, they do a deal like Knives Out, where they just paid for- over four hundred million dollars for two films. Uh, you know, uh, which is because they have to, because. They don't have the franchises that Bob Iger recognized so, it was so wise of him so many years ago to understand that that's where the world was headed. And uh, we talked a lot about franchises on the show, but I think no one has executed it better or recognized it earlier than uh, Bob Iger. And he's really set up Disney uh, for incredible success, really incredible success.
0: Well, on that note, uh, thank you so much Anjali and John for joining me on Techtopia and for this absolutely amazing conversation about uh, the transformation of the entertainment industry. Thanks so much for having
2: us. Thank you.
0: Anjali Midha is CEO and co-founder at Diesel Labs. The Cambridge, Massachusetts based startup focuses on cutting edge content analysis to help media companies address some of the toughest questions confronting companies today, including what to produce, where to distribute it and where to market it. And John Mass is the Executive Vice President at Content Partners, a Los Angeles based investment company and the leading independent owner in the world of major studio distributed films, television shows and related media. Since its inception, Content Partners has invested more than $1 billion in this marketplace with more than 500 studio release films and more than 3000 hours of television. This is Techtopia, I'm Chitra Raghavan. Techtopia is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Corr, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Wineland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcastgoodstory.io. At Join us next week for another episode of Techtopia. I'll see you then.